Good afternoon and welcome. And thank you very much for coming to today's discussion on the future of outsourcing, which has been kindly supported by Serco. Government contracting is a topic that the Institute has taken extensive interest in over the last decade and a half, so I'm uh, delighted to be able to discuss it here today. The government spends tens of billions of pounds a year on services delivered by external suppliers. Uh, these private and voluntary sector organisations deliver everything from waste collection and catering uh, through to IT, healthcare and prisons. Uh, despite uh, its widespread use, or indeed perhaps because of it, uh, outsourcing has come under substantial scrutiny uh, following a number of high-profile failures. Labour has pledged to oversee the biggest wave of insourcing in a generation, uh, while the government is just about to pass a new procurement act, which it hopes will create a simpler, more transparent system following the UK's exit from the EU. So what role should the private and voluntary sectors play in the delivery of public services? Uh, what impact do outsourcing and insourcing have on the quality and the cost of public services? What impact will the Procurement Act have? How can the transparency of government outsourcing be improved? And how can suppliers be held to account more effectively by both the government and the public? Uh, to discuss these questions and more, I'm delighted uh, to be joined by uh, Dame Neil Griffith, uh, new in post, and uh, very kind of to join us uh, today, particularly given this is the third IFG uh, event uh, in a row that she's been here for. Um, Anthony Kirby, uh, the CEO of Serco UK and Europe, and Sarah Viber, the Chief Executive of the National Council for Voluntary Organisations. Um, each of our speakers is going to make opening remarks. I'm then going to ask a few follow-up questions of our panellists uh, before opening it up to uh, questions from the audience. We will be live tweeting from the at IFG events account uh, using the hashtags IFGLab23 and also hashtag Lab23 uh, and I'd encourage everyone here to tweet along uh, as well. Right, without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Nia Griffith. Carol, thank you very much indeed. And um, as Nick has referenced, back in February of 2021, Rachel Reeves made a very clear speech talking about that biggest wave of, of, of insourcing in a generation. And of course, that is very much uh, prompted by some of the appalling um, practices we saw in outsourcing, such as the COVID period when 99% of outsourcing contracts were not put out to tender, um, which is a, you know, a, a, a staggering figure. So uh, apart from the big collapses that we've also seen. So uh, yes, we can insource, and we have insourced in government. So if you think about the cleaning contract in the Welsh Health Service, that was brought back in-house by Edwina Hart when she was health minister. A number of councils have done likewise and have reported very favourably on the results of doing so. So why was outsourcing contemplated in the first place? Well, very often it was about saving money. 
But the only way you save money is either by poorer terms and conditions for your workforce, lower wages for your workforce, poorer service for your customer base, um, and of course, you add into all of that, taking some money off for profits and shareholders. So it's no surprise that undercutting was often the name of the game with the collapse of Carillion being the culmination of prices being pushed uh, so low that they couldn't deliver the service. However, you can't simply just jump up now and insource everything. For a start, there are huge personnel and capability gaps. In other words, you've outsourced so many things, you don't actually have the employees in-house. And where you do have some employees in-house, you don't necessarily have some of the expertise. You also have to strike a balance between those things which might only be of occasional use or a very small amount of use, um, and those things you know, which are every day, which you might want to build your workforce up for. So there are a number of challenges. I certainly think that we need to move towards much greater transparency. Um, it's long been suggested that freedom of information requests should be um, applied to outsourced services because it can be very frustrating. Uh, somebody thinks they're going to be able to get some information or they get that from, from the council or the health board or that's been outsourced so we can't tell you about it. There's a capacity question in terms of the management of outsourcing, and I think this has been a problem for many, many years. The way that we actually manage the, the contracts, the way that many outsourced services don't get monitored, sometimes, of course, it becomes very obvious, as in when G4S uh, didn't turn up for the Olympics. But in other cases, an uh, example, for example, of a council which outsourced building control, and years down the line, residents found problems that should have been picked up by the building inspectors. But outsourced and not monitored, the power problems stack up. So there's, a, there's a, a, an issue there of capacity building. Um, how do you improve things in the outsourced sector? Well, obviously, Andrew Rainey gave a speech yesterday talking about making sure that the living wage is calculated, taking into account the cost of living. So you can. There is automatic um, pension enrolment. So you can legislate to make some conditions uh, compulsory upon all, um, all employers. But fundamentally, you don't have the control that you have if those services are provided from inside the public sector. And so clearly, the wish is to try to uh, fast forward and bring in insourcing. But realistically, we have to look at what can be done, how quickly it can be done, and what it's appropriate uh, to be done. The other problem I think we have to face up to, and this is something which has always dogged the public sector, but whilst you have fantastic people with fantastic public service ethos, you also sometimes have a sense of complacency and a sense of, well, if there isn't any competition for this service, um, what's the way to motivate people to provide a really good service? So I think that's something that you, know, you need to think about. 
we also need to think about being realistic about price, and that's another huge challenge for us, uh, given the constraints we then have on the on the public purse. So the the will is absolutely there to want to do as much insourcing as we can. The reality is that there will be sections which will remain outsourced um, and for a number of uh, number of reasons that I've briefly touched upon. So on that note, I will come back to the chair. Yeah, thank you very much. Our next speaker will be Anthony Kirby. So thanks, Nick, and thanks, uh, thanks, Nia. Look, the private sector has a long history of delivering public services, whether it's in the UK or around the world. And I do think that there is overwhelming evidence of the positive role that the private sector has played in the delivery of those services, whether it's technology and defence, innovation in the custodial estate, environmental improvements in waste management, or the management and delivery of lifeline services. The private sector brings together international experience, innovation, investment capability and capacity, and local know-how to drive forward better impacts and better delivery of social value at local level. And Serco's uh, first contract in the UK was about 60 years ago, uh, RAF Filingdales, um, and we now operate in around 20 countries supporting the new Labour administration in Australia and other, and other governments such as uh, in New Zealand, in the US and in Canada. And today, the vast majority of my 30,000 uh, colleagues here in the UK support some of society's most vulnerable people 24 hours a day. And their commitment to helping people and the values that they live by, I would argue, as Neil agrees, are on uh, par with those that work in the public sector. And day in, day out, those people are delivering those services do some remarkable things and achieve some remarkable outcomes which I hope are going to impact a better future and their contribution to and our commitment for is often our commitment in delivery is often missed in the public public narrative around outsourcing and the entire debate that, that surrounds outsourcing and we often only hear about the failures and part of that is the fault of outsourcers themselves we don't I don't uh, talk positively enough, clearly, about the value of the uh, the people that are out on the front line delivering those services day in, day out, and working with some of Sarah's organisations and within the in the public sector as well. But that's not to say that there haven't been instances, as Neil referred to, where outsourced services haven't either delivered. Um, the services that they were contracted to or proved to be not very good value for money. And I won't sit here and say anything different to that because the facts state it, but overwhelmingly outsourcing has uh, delivered positive outcomes, like I say, whether it's here in the UK or around the rest of the world. But we should always look at how we do things better. And my ethos leading this business is how we can impact a better future and a better tomorrow. And... Um, Neil raised the point around why is why was outsourcing first uh, first you know uh, put into public services. It wasn't just about um, saving money. I wasn't born when the first outsourcing was uh, contemplated, but it wasn't just about out, uh, cost uh, making things more cheaply. This was around how do we drive innovation. So the first prison that was outsourced was outsourced to drive innovation into the public sector. I am very, very proud to sit here and say that the prisons that we run 
the, my team run on a daily basis to keep around 10,000 uh, predominantly male prisoners here in the UK or in Australia or New Zealand as some of the best performing prisons in the country. My job is to make sure that we put that innovation back into the public sector so that the other 120 prisons can try and uh, hopefully perform as well as the prisons that I'm responsible for. But to be clear, we do want to see, we don't want to see this as a race to the bottom. And Nia said, you know, often um, paying the minimum wage, if the government contracts and says something has to be paid at the minimum wage, or they're looking for the lowest price, technically acceptable bid, then guess what providers are going to do? And I've now come to the conclusion that I'm not going to allow any of my people to bid for any contracts that are on the minimum wage. It's got to be above the minimum wage moving forward, because that's the right thing to do as a responsible organisation. And that will mean I have to walk away from some of those opportunities opportunities, whether they're with national or with uh, with local authorities. But look, Labour do understand, and I, ov I obviously spend a lot of time talking to um, a number of NIA's colleagues in the uh, in the shadow cabinet, the, they do see that there will be a need for outsourcing, as, as NIA described, but appropriate outsourcing. So there's some things that should never be outsourced in my mind. Um, and hopefully we may get to a, a, a part of the conversation that says, what do I not think should be outsourced? And you would expect me to sit here is running a business like I do and say outsource everything we'll take everything we can and we'll give it a good go there are some things that we should that should never be outsourced so I'm not prepared to sit here and say that either but look we are we are committed to social value we've been doing social value and we've been impacting social value on a local level for many many years long before it became it had a fashionable label called social value it's just called doing the right thing in local communities so i'm proud and passionate to be able to continue to do that and as i say uh work with sarah to work with some of sarah's organizations to do that and we agreed when we met a few weeks ago that i need to do more to uh to work with some of the voluntary uh the voluntary sector as well Look, I want Serco to be leading that charge of working with government in partnership to drive better quality outcomes, to impact a better tomorrow, and to continue, in my view, to lead the 30,000 people that are doing good things on a daily basis as I sit here and engage in these conversations as they're out doing some very difficult and challenging and risky things on our, all of our behalf. Thank you, Nick. Absolutely, thank you. Uh, and our final speaker, Sarah Byron. Thank you, Nick. Um, charities deliver £15.8 billion of public services, um, and the benefits and impact on the voluntary sector to the states, I think, is hugely undervalued um, and underpaid. The sorts of services that the voluntary sector is delivering are things like specialist domestic abuse services, youth centres, and alternative education provision, counselling for birth parents whose children have been adopted. Now, public services that, that support people like these are not the same thing as buying IT support or buying cleaning contracts. These types of services must have um, people's individual needs at their heart in order to be successful. Um, and these sorts of services that are centred around people are the sorts of services that charities provide so well. Um, charities know their communities, they've got deep connections and are able to respond really quickly, flexibly, um, as people's needs as they do change over time. Um, they're often small and local, they're able to be innovative, they work in the preventative space often. 
Charities also engage volunteers in service delivery. And this is really important because they're often from the communities that are being supported, which means volunteers play this really important role in breaking down barriers between services and communities um, and often make those services really trusted in areas where perhaps people wouldn't want to interact um, with the state or are distrustful of public services. Um, Charities also work across the boundaries of public services. Um, and as being not-for-profit, um, if there is ever any surplus, and I'll come on to that, um, they invest that surplus back in the development of services. Um, so charities have this really vital role to play in public services. They deliver high-quality, value-for-money services to communities. And when I say value-for-money, I mean that in terms of the outcomes that they provide, not necessarily being the lowest cost. And the problem is that charities are often treated as the cheapest alternative or a last-ditch safety net because commissioners know that charities often won't walk away um, from the communities that they serve if they know that it means people have nowhere else to turn. Um, but there's a bigger problem right now, and that is the need for investment in and reform of public services after a decade of austerity. Charities have become the sticking plasters of the state, um, and I'm a trustee of the Trussell Trust, and I think it's a national scandal that last year they handed out three million emergency food parcels. And how this plays out in public services, in the public service arena, is that grants and contracts for charities um, are increasingly underfunded. We recently surveyed 300 of our members um, about the public services they're delivering. Um, and what we found is that right now, government are getting things far more cheaply than if they were to insource them. Um, it's not a new problem. Two in five of our organisations said that the value of their grants and contracts have never covered the true cost of delivering those services. Um, as we know, inflation peaked at 11% over the last year. So what we're now seeing is a real crisis in public services. Almost four in five of our charity members telling us that they're now subsidising public services with charitable funding, either using voluntary donations or using their reserves um, to plug gaps in government funding. And of course, this is completely unsustainable. Um, so what it means is charities are handing back contracts, um, often after decades of delivering a contract in a community. They're reducing service capacity, which means waiting lists. They can't recruit and retain staff who can get paid more down in Tesco. Um, and the staff that do stay are getting increasingly burnt out by the length of the waiting lists. Um, and overall, what it means is that quality and sometimes even safety is being compromised. So a future Labour government must invest in public services and commissioners then must uplift those contracts to cover the true cost. Um, but I guess like my sort of final point would be we just shouldn't underestimate the level of challenge after a decade of austerity um, and really think about people and purpose first. And sometimes that might mean insourcing, but often that will mean outsourcing to the right provider that really understands communities and can deliver that outcome-based value for money that I mentioned. Um, and so, yeah, what I think um, government, private sector and the voluntary sector need to do is really put people and communities into the focus and bring together the strengths that all of us um, can bring to public service delivery.
Thank you very much, Sarah. Uh, and just to flag for those with an interest in the wider performance of uh, public services, we will be publishing Performance Tracker, which is our big assessment of uh, nine key public services uh, at the end of October. So do keep an eye out for that. Um, Nia, I wanted to come to you first um, and on the kind of the benefits of insourcing. So uh, we published some research a, a few years ago and spoke to a number of local authorities that had insourced. And often what they would tell us was that that they had seen benefits in terms of being able to integrate services that were previously delivered by separate organizations uh, and that there had therefore been some improvements in quality. The one thing we, they also consistently told us was that it was costing them money to insource, in part because they'd made a conscious decision that they wanted to spend more on those people's wages and it was part of their investment in the local community. So I guess my question to you is, given the state of local government finances, or indeed government finances more generally, would a future Labour government be happy to pay more to deliver the same service in order to pay the staff delivering that more? Well, I mean, that's a, that's a, a very leading question as we're not allowed to make any financial commitments and that would be a, a, a massive announcement, wouldn't it? Um, look, I think there's a balance to be struck because I think you'll also find some examples where uh, council leaders are saying they've actually saved money. I think uh, what the, 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 the issue is there of flexibility, of course, that is a, a, you know, a key thing we saw in COVID, many council staff doing all sorts of different tasks um, and that is something you can do with your, your, your in-house team that you were able to switch from different things um, at, at very short notice and able to um, uh, move across departments and, and have that coordination. Uh, but I think the, 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 the issue with our, our public services is that while we've been hollowed out, it's going to be some, you know, some very tough decisions, some priorities having to be made. Um, but I think for many of our, um, certainly our Labour Party members and our Labour councils across the country, um, the idea of insourcing is very appealing. But you know, we want to do all sorts of things like you know, build more social housing. Well, are we going to do that purely from a council perspective when very few councils now have the um, the you know the architects departments and the way that they used to and so forth? Um, so it's clearly going to be a role for for, you know, for, for the, the, the private and the voluntary sector, but. Um, um, I, I, I think the, the the principle is very much there. As I say, it's the practicality that may take a while to implement. And then I wanted to ask about kind of how prescriptive you think that a future Labour government should be about. So, uh, for example, under uh, the last leader of the party, the, there was a quite a, a thoughtful uh, piece uh, on um, insourcing uh, in local government um, services. And it had a kind of a number of factors for local authorities to consider when whether to insource or not. But actually, it left quite a lot of discretion still for local authorities. So, do you think ultimately the decision should be down to local authorities, or do you think kind of central government should be central government should be putting the kind of the thumb uh, down a bit uh, in order to influence their decisions about whether to insource or outsource? 
Well, I think if you think about the Byron Report and our absolute commitment to empowering people more locally, closer to home, um, our, you know, our instinct is very much that we want to build the capacity of local government rather than um, you know, centralising and centralising uh, our decision-making in that way. So I'd want to see local authorities only having more, um, more say, but certainly having saying in matters like this. Um, Anthony, I just want to come to you on the um, transparency point. Um, so Nia mentioned uh, freedom of information, which is something that a lot of people have um, asked, uh, particularly for big contractors, to be subject to directly, that you could uh, send an FOI to Serco, for example, to ask about the contracts. Is that something you'd be supportive of? Look, I mean, we'd have to look at the legislation that's brought forward because inevitably you may end up with unintended consequences. But the principle of transparency, absolutely, categorically, really supportive of. I can't be any more, you know, uh, let me be incredibly clear. Transparency is the way forward in terms of being able to articulate a conversation like this, whereby you can look at data, you can look at performance data. And I think if you can compare and contrast it between uh, services that are in-source, services that are outsourced, and services that are delivered by the voluntary sector, then absolutely be totally up for taking part in that consultation. And if it's not commercially sensitive information, then why not is the question I would start with. So, same question for you. Do you think uh, particularly big charities with big contracts should be subject to FOI if it was extended? I mean, I think um, transparency is probably not just about kind of information being available, but it's also about being accessible and kind of the public being able to understand it. I mean, I think from a transparency point of view, what we're really keen to see is central government being able to see the whole picture of public service delivery. Um, and obviously then commissioners kind of close to the ground being able to see the full cost of, of, of what the contract costs to deliver. Um, and I think at the moment what we'll see is government will only kind of see if like a major prime provider goes bust but probably isn't noticing the closure of lots of small community organisations or them like withdrawing from the market locally because they can't afford to deliver the contracts. Yeah, that was certainly the case in Carillion when central government didn't even know who all of the subcontractors uh, were, which is clearly a massive problem. Right, I'm going to open it up to some um, questions from the audience. Uh, I'm going to take them uh, two or three at a time. Uh, so if you do have a question, raise your hand. Then if I point to you, can you please wait uh, until the microphone comes to you. Uh, please tell us your name uh, at the start. And also, can I please, please ask that they are, in fact, questions uh, and not long statements. Thank you. Uh, lady at the front. Hi, uh, thanks for that. My name is Holly Jones. I'm a postgrad at UCL's Institute of Innovation and Public Purpose, and I'd uh, recommend everyone read the big con by Marion Mazzucato if you haven't already. Um, I want to pick up on Anthony's uh, innovation point. Uh, I'm very much of the school of thought which says that a well-resourced public sector is what kind of drives forward innovation. I've seen a lot of things in the local, particularly local authorities, where the contractee works to their contract and the letter of their contract, and it's a much more passive relationship where they're saying, well, if you want us to do something different, you have to tell us we have, to, we have to do something different and there's no kind of incentive for them to innovate um, themselves. Um, so I was interested to hear that you, you said that the, the private sector is, is driving forward innovation in a lot of um, uh, the work that you've seen. I'd be interested to hear more about that, please. Great, so that's one question on innovation. Anyone else? Uh, yes, gentleman here and then uh, lady just behind. Uh, on the video, I'm just a uh, local party member. Um, 
just a question about kind of automation and AI, AI etc. So, given that kind of a large portion of the roles that have been outsourced may well be, and probably should be, if not will be, automated within the next sort of decade, why should the local, why should the public sector be, or should they be thinking about rather? The kind of the jeopardy of taking those roles back and the redundancies and all that that will be inevitably involved in that. So is that kind of factoring into thinking about which services get insourced and which don't? Thank you very much. Uh, and there was a lady behind as well. Hi, uh, Gemma from Turning Point. We're a uh, national health and social care provider charity. Um, uh, I was interested in the point about social value. Um, would a future Labour government um, be interested in making more of the social value legislation that currently exists? Great. So three really good questions there on social value, on the implications of automation and AI for insourcing, and on the kind of capacity for the private sector to innovate. Uh, Neil, I'm going to come to you first. Okay. Okay. Um, well, I think you were, you were indicating the innovation one was France, was it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, well, I think you know, there are obviously examples both ways. I suspect Anthony may reference some of the very specialist um, defence-type contracts um, on, on that for the private sector. But I'd like to pick up on the social value one. Um, yeah, absolutely. Look, a procurement bill has just gone through Parliament and we put forward amendments to put in social and economic value to be much, much stronger um, than um, you know, the government was busy sort of trying to, to water that down. But uh, even when we were in the EU, and certainly Certainly in line with World Trade Organization uh, guidelines, there is absolutely nothing wrong with having economic and social value as part of your criteria for judging tenders. Um, it's for too long. It was a myth that it was these other organisations which stopped you from doing that and you always had to go simply for the lowest price. So if you as a, a, a local council think that having jobs in your area is a criteria which you want to have in your judging of the tenders, then you know, you're perfectly entitled to, to do that. And it's certainly something that, as I say, we have actively been, been pushing for. Thank you. Uh, Anthony? Okay, thank you. Um, and Holly, thanks very much for the, for the question on innovation. And I think innovation is not just about um, technology, something shiny and new and uh, something that people can look and, you know, touch and feel. But I think it's about uh, new processes, re-engineering the way things are done. Um, you know, re-engineering the way we think about things. So if you were to look in some of our defence businesses, um, the design of the next, um, you know, the F-35 actually could be drones produced by 3D printers that you can scale fast rather than take 10 years to try and procure and then 15 years to build. And we were on a, a session this morning where we had some innovation in exactly that sort of form driven by the private sector working with the public sector. In terms of innovation, uh, sorry, another point on innovation, our new prisoner HMP Fosway down in Leicester where we're focused on rehabilitating the prisoners where we brought innovation from our prisons in Australia um, and New Zealand where 
typically that may be more challenging for uh, a procuring organization to do if it's limited to just one country um, i think is another example and then ai and um you know ai and automation there are going to be some jobs that lend themselves to ai and automation in uh, in our, in the US, we operate the it's called a CMS contract. It's what used to be called Obamacare. So this is about giving access to hundreds of millions of Americans to health insurance, and we use AI and automation so that we augment the work our people do. So rather than just use automation to put somebody through a process and spit out a decision at the end, which is probably not helpful for the individual, you then refocus the efforts that only a human can do, which is that empathy and compassion. And, and everything else. And can I sit here and say in 20 years there won't be a computer that can replicate compassion and empathy? No, I can't. I hope there isn't. Well, I would hope that, uh, that we're able to try and augment the work our people do uh, rather than uh, rather than replace it would be my view. Thank you. So... Thank you. So on innovation, I mean, charities naturally innovate. It's kind of the way that they're set up to kind of do that sort of test and learn and because they're close to communities um, and they're often small in localities and so able to respond really flexibly um, and often preventatively. And I think we showed, we saw this in spades during COVID. So charities turned up in communities first before local government got there and then stuck around for the duration. And I think that just shows kind of the important role that they play in, in that arena um, in terms of AI there's actually lots of work going on across the voluntary sector on AI at the moment particularly in relation to kind of how we can use data better to really understand needs and predict needs um, but I think my kind of immediate response to that question would be you probably can't automate a lot of this kind of very specialised services for people that charities are delivering so well um, on social value um, I mean I think one of the things that charities struggle with at the moment is charities bring inherent social value um, but the um, commissioning system asks us to account for social value as something that's like an additional thing to call the delivery um, but what we do is social value um, and so I think um, yeah that's something that we'd, we'd want to see addressed so it can kind of be better accounted for. Just to add on innovation, I think sometimes you can see it even in services that have been outsourced very badly. Uh, so we, like everyone else, were very critical of the manner in which uh, probation services or the supervision of low and medium risk offenders was uh, outsourced. And the program was indeed a disaster uh, in many areas. But actually, at the end of the program, just before it insourced, there are a number of areas where the suppliers have developed some pretty good case management systems that have now been scrapped as part of the reunification of those services. And if you kind of see what the things that uh, those in the new unified services are saying, a lot of them are kind of very regretful that they've um, lost some of that innovation. So overall, that, that outsourcing did not work. But even in those circumstances, there was, there was some innovation there. Right, another round of questions. Uh, let's go to the lady here, then the gentleman there, and then the lady, the man just there. Oh, sorry. Hi, hi, hi. oh, sorry. Polly, Polly from Navarra. Um, Anthony, as you acknowledge, Circle have faced their fair share of scandals, um, you know, from being fined 56 million since 2010, um, some of that for being defrauded in the government, um, to serving children worms at a home office hotel in Manchester, and then there's also the much criticised track and trace programme. What would you say to people saying that Circle essentially just cleaning their act up now to try and save their skin ahead of this? massive wave of labour insourcing. 
Thank you. Should we just pass to just that gentleman just behind that might be this? Uh, uh, Nick Temple from Social Investment Business. Um, just interested, I suppose, like whether obviously Anthony's answerable to his shareholders and charities and social enterprises are normally not answerable to their communities and have a, a mission they've been set up for. Would you treat them differently? Uh, I'd be interested in the panel's views. Or, or do you think the similarity is more at scale, i.e. big charities are more like big private outsourcers and you should treat those differently, big and small? Thank you. And then a gentleman here in the green. Thank you. Uh, Sebastian Bachelier um, from the Living Wage Foundation. Uh, I guess my question is, um, if insourcing you know, is on the agenda but might take some time due to complications, would one of the first steps be, for instance, to implement the real living wage in public sector procurement and commissioning, um, and not just real living wage, but other benefits like um, living hours and sort of other things as well? Uh, thank you. So three questions there on, uh, should we be introducing a real living wage in outsource services? Uh, is there a difference fundamentally between uh, the sectors or is it more a question of uh, size? Uh, and uh, are you just uh, cleaning your wraps up now ahead of uh, widespread uh, insourcing? Um, I might come to you on that first, Anthony. <laughs> well, I'm assuming I'm going to be the only person that can answer that question. Um, look, the, Polly, thanks very much for the, for the uh, questions. There have been a number of issues in I would argue, prior to um, the current uh, management of Serco, they didn't handle things very well. The, the individual examples you cite, I'm not going to try and argue against any of them because you and I should have a separate conversation and I'll try and uh, provide you with some additional facts after this. Um, but I think it's really important that we understand that I am proud of all of our people that worked on test and trace as an example. So we talk about test and trace cost in the UK, 37 billion pounds. Everybody thinks I took 37 billion pounds of, of the test and trace money. We were awarded, I think it was about 3% of the COVID test and trace. We had 10,500 people on test and trace. And the test and trace that was handled by local authorities was what's called complex cases. So if there was an outbreak in a care home or a school, that was classified as complex. My 10,000 people had to trace a chap that had a brown coat on wearing dark blue jeans that got on the number 10 bus and got off at a stop somewhere in London. So I was, and I continue to be, exceptionally proud of their contribution. In terms of the shareholder question, not only do I have to answer to shareholders, I have to come here and answer to uh, people in this audience, which I think is a real example, if you don't mind me saying, of transparency in, in reality and where I'm able to try and answer some of these questions as, as much as I can. When we look at our shareholders, if you take this organization as an example, our shareholders stood by the contracts that we signed up to uh, prior to 2014. The cost of shareholders around 850 million pounds. So on the asylum accommodation contract, we stood by that contract as Sarah says, charities uh, very, very rarely or voluntary organizations walk away from contracts. So do we, so do I. So we lost about 170 million pounds on that contract because I wasn't prepared to walk away and leave people with no roofs over their heads and, and, uh, and support there. So I hope you can see that as an outsourcer, we are trying to do the right thing. Uh, we don't always get it right. And you've cited some examples there, which, which we can chat through. Um, but uh, I, I am very, very proud of the work that my people do. Um, I, I just don't want this opportunity to pass without, uh, 
without answering that. And then I forgot the gentleman's in the Greens question. Uh, your question, sorry again. That was about introducing a real living wage uh, in outsourced contracts. Listen, if that's the legislation that uh, the government can bring forward, then that's the legislation we have to bid against and I'll be supportive of it. And can I just uh, reframe that big versus small question for you? Do you find that you do you find it easier to collaborate with big charities or with private sector SMEs, for example? Without wanting to share the question because Sarah sat on the side of me, uh, I, th- I think we work well with both. So Migrant Help we work exceptionally well with, who is a, who's a large organisation. The Red Cross, whether it's in the UK or in Europe, uh, with uh, asylum support in, in Europe, with the Red Cross in Germany and Switzerland and so on. Um, so and SMEs, we spend hundreds of millions of pounds with SMEs. The thing that... I think we could do better moving forward, and this will need uh, Nia and her colleagues' help on this, is to allow SMEs to plug into the government contracting space in a slightly easier way than they do at the moment. So I have huge uh, procurement organisation, huge risk organisation, and all of the backup that comes with a big, big organisation. Some of our SMEs don't have that facility and those resources, so what I want to try and do is, is allow them to plug into us so that we can then go and act as the prime into big uh, into big government contractors where we are able to uh, help them with their free cash flow and those sort of things as we as we move forward because it's always it is difficult for smaller organisations to be able to do that and that is unfortunately a fact of life. So, um, so on Nick's question and it's a really good question, Nick. And I think I mean yes, there is a fundamental difference with an organisation that is focused on purpose. Um, and if there is any profit in a not-for-profit, as I said earlier, it's reinvested back into service improvement, um, and that's that's very different from a shareholder model, obviously. Um, but of course, the voluntary sector is not homogenous. It ranges from huge hundred million pound income charities to tiny community groups run entirely by volunteers and so some of those large charities are probably on the scale of like a local NHS organisation the smallest are much more similar to uh, an SME or, or smaller um, and we've done quite a lot of work on that in the kind of charity space we published a report a few years ago called Rebalancing the Relationship which was all about how you can bring the strengths of those larger charities which kind of have some of the teams that you talked about in terms of being able to work with commissioners but then bring in the smaller organisations that can bring that kind of innovation and flexibility in close to communities that I talked about earlier. So I think it's kind of really important to bring both together. Um, on uh, real living wage, yes, absolutely. Low pay is such a big issue in the voluntary sector. Um, around a third of voluntary sector organisations are delivering um, uh, in the sort of social care, social services space, which is where low pay is, is such an issue. Um, and charities that work alongside the NHS doing similar roles can't pay the same as um, what NHS workers are providing. So recruitment and retention is, is really tr- really tough, really challenging. Um, I gave you the Tesco example earlier. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, all that happens when you end up with vacancies is services not being able to um, provide for people and it's communities that are suffering. So yeah, low pay really is a big issue. And Mia, do you, do you see all outsourcing as the same or do you think there is less urgency to insource those services delivered by the voluntary sector or indeed actually it's it's good that they are currently delivered by the voluntary sector? Um, 
that's a, a very interesting question, isn't it? I mean, the, um, I, I think it just has to, I think when you're dealing with insourcing, it has to be what um, suits the particular uh, public sector authority in terms of its own capacity, in terms of its need, whether it's consistent or whether it's occasional. Um, and clearly, they're likely to be some very good partnerships with the, with the charity sector because of um, very often historic reasons and because they're very often locally based. I think uh, where it's uh, external, you know, private companies, it's more likely to be a more distant relationship in many respects. And so you perhaps won't have that, that closeness. Um, but in terms of priorities, I mean, that's very much something that local government have to look at itself. And I'd, I'd like to come back on the Living Wage Foundation uh, question, if I may. Um, it's precisely what the Labour government in Wales has done um, on the issue of carers. So the manifesto promise in 2021 was to make sure that all carers in Wales were paid the proper living wage, the real living wage, um, and that has been implemented. Now clearly there was a, a significant cost to that because uh, some of them were in-house anyway, and also if they weren't in-house, they were still being paid for by the public sector finally in the long term, but it did ensure that that money going from the public sector into the private sector, a certain amount was set aside for wages that you know, brought that wage to that level, rather than it costing the same as in-house, but the money going in profit rather than in wages. So that's uh, there is an example there of us um, in government doing that. So I think it's certainly a very powerful tool that could be used. Uh, and uh, we'll go for another round of questions. There are lots of hands up. Uh, so gentlemen here, then gentlemen at the back, and then lady over here. Uh, yes, yes. Hi, uh, Paul Durkin, uh, Wing Canton PLC. Uh, question for Sarah and Anthony. What, what is, how can government procurement best improve the outcome from their process? And to Nia, what are Labour's plans to change the way government procure to get a better outcome with the private sector? Thank you. Uh, and the lady over there? Thank you. It's uh, Christy Cummings, Chief Executive of Community Leisure UK, which is a membership association for leisure and culture trusts. So it's a kind of two-part question for me. The first part is around the policy around insourcing and the risks to our members who are all charities and social enterprises. So how can Labour have a policy of insourcing, I guess in, in line with what Sarah has been talking about, that doesn't impact on charities and social enterprises negatively, but actually understands that there's different models of outsourcing within, within our sector. And the second part is coming back um, to something that um, you know, mentioned earlier was the collapse of Carillion. Um, and within leisure specifically, we've got very, very similar models that we've been talking about for a long time that are damaging the sector, but we're really struggling to land that message. So how can we take the lessons that have been learned, or indeed have there been lessons learned from the collapse of Carillion that we can apply to kind of insourcing or outsourcing? Thank you. Thank you. And then uh, gentlemen at the back there. 
Hager, um, Ed from Locality. We support local community organisations, many of whom uh, provide commissioned services locally. And just wanted to pick up what I think is a bit of a, an emerging theme in that it feels like one of the problems of the outsourcing uh, debate is it kind of lumps together quite a lot of things which aren't really uh, that similar. As kind of Sarah talked about, there's a big difference between an IT or defence contract and a more kind of person-centred mental health service, for example. The procurement bill which is going through at the moment kind of seems to double down on that approach, kind of trying to create one streamlined approach. So I wondered if you thought there was a case for a future government trying to disentangle that um, a bit and kind of perhaps create a different approach for those kind of long-term partnership based around collaboration with local communities rather than just a binary in-source and outsource based around cost and competition. Great. So uh, more good questions there. So one on the kind of uh, the league, whether we have lots of different approaches to procurement as we did before, but whether the more streamlined approach under the new uh, Procurement Act is helpful, which doesn't differentiate between those services more likely to be delivered by charities and others. Uh, one on kind of uh, protecting uh, charities and lessons uh, from Carillion, and another on how to improve the procurement process to get better outcomes. Neo, I'm going to come to you first. Mm -hmm. Right, well, I think there's, a, there's enough there for at least a two-week course, but um, uh, let's, let's have a look at some of the things you can do. Um, yes, I mean, Labour is very much uh, committed to the idea that you can actually use procurement to raise standards. So, for example, in Wales, we, a long time ago, we um, said we wouldn't have any public procurement going to firms which blacklisted, um, you know, trade union activists, for example. Um, we also then said in terms of government grants to companies that you know, workers' rights, um, a green agenda, and you know, health and well-being of the workforce um, you know, were part of the conditions that they would have to fulfil to get those grants. So there's no reason why you can't use procurement um, as a tool for change in that respect. And as I say, we have examples of doing so. Um, in terms of how do you avoid a Carillion, it's back to one of the points I made initially. It's about this business of being able to manage and monitor so that we can pick up early warning signs of these things um, you know, not, not being viable or potentially going to fail, say, you know, recruitment problems for a firm or whatever it is. Um, and that, I think, again, it's often an area which is overlooked, um, either because of shortage of time or staff or expertise, but it's one that we need to improve on massively, I think. Um, and in terms of what happens if we make the charity workers um, redundant, well, what we'd like to see, I think in many instances, I remember setting up a youth organisation and we were so delighted when we managed to get a permanent post funded by the local authority as the head of that organisation in order to provide stability because you're always looking for the next grant in those sorts of situations. So if you go in-house, then hopefully some of those workers who are currently having their contracts renewed if they're lucky every two or three years according to a grant and whose you know, pension rights may not be very good um, may well be able to have the in-sourced jobs. They may well be able to 
apply for jobs that are insourced and therefore they have all the terms and conditions of the, the local authority, which may be a much better deal for them than doing in the charity. Uh, Anthony. Um, well, Paul, thanks very much for the question. It was a, um, it's a good one in terms of actually, is the are, are the customer just buying the service, the input of the service at the point at which a contract's bid, or are they trying to drive a policy outcome? And uh, I'm hopeful that we're, uh, as we move forward, we will be focused more on the policy outcomes. So, for example, in our prisons, we've got a, a, a new resettlement prison. Actually, when every man leaves that prison, wouldn't it be fantastic to stop them reoffending? The, they've got the mental health support in place, whether it's from the health service or the voluntary organisation. They've got housing to go to, they've got a job to go to, or they've got skills and uh, opportunities to learn and grow once they leave there, because actually, all that's going to happen, we're going to get into a, a virtual circle again, and we'll just go and bid for another prison in five years' time, because we'll need more prisons to put more people in because the reoffending rate's gone up. So I think being focused on the policy outcomes that you're trying to drive through the procurement is is going to help drive a better outcome there. And I think one of the things that um, we would look for as we move forward is the coming together of those procuring departments. So instead of trying to procure this little bit of the contract in isolation, actually, how do you try and work with different parts, whether it's some of it's insourced, some of it's outsourced, some of it's delivered by outsourced partners in uh, the voluntary sector? I think just trying to, and that sounds like a panacea, and it's um, I'm sure it's been thought about many times before, but I think we're going to continue to be in this situation in five or ten years' time unless we're able to at least try something different. Uh, moving forward. Sarah? Thanks. Um, so on the question around um, uh, how we can best improve process uh, in terms of procurement, I'd say actually where we need to focus is on culture, not on process. Um, and I think often process takes precedent in these conversations and it really just undermines the ability of organisations to be able to really meet people's needs when we're talking about people-focused services. Um, and I'd like to see more help from commissioners to be able to use the flexibility that exists in in the current um, regulations um, so we can kind of see that culture change come about. In terms of kind of insourcing, I mean, what we hear from our members is what we see is services are sometimes insourced often after many years of being delivered by the voluntary sector only for people to then be referred back to the voluntary sector organisation because that's where the expertise lies and I think Mia makes a really interesting point um, which I need to give more thought to but I do think I do worry that what you'd get if you took charity sector staff and put them into for example local government is you'd lose some of that trust in those bridges um, and of course the role that volunteers play within that whole kind of service delivery and also the independence that charities play in helping kind of shape and also hold um, providers to account um, on the final question about kind of lumping um, all different services together, yes, I mean, let me say I completely agree. And I think actually what the procurement bill has done is really double down on this. Um, and there's a real danger that people focus services are overlooked um, in that. And say, I mean, just like one example, the light touch regime, um, which was supposed to make this easier, has been opened up to you can procure anything using the light touch regime. So I think there's further work to do there. Thank you. I think we've probably got one moment for one last question. There was a gentleman in a white shirt who was waiting very patiently to ask a question. 
Hi, uh, Sam Bright from DSMOG. Um, if transparency is going to be one of the governing principles of outsourcing in future, what else will Labour look to introduce on that from aside from freedom of information, transparency? Thank you. And anyone else you'd like to throw in one last question? No, okay, Neil, come to you on. Yes, um, well, um, certainly, obviously, you want to have the, the freedom of information to be to be available, but also, don't forget, we are setting up an office of value for money. Um, and again, you know, that should be looking at what we want to have in terms of transparency in, of, of the procurement uh, contracts. But I think it's something we do want to drive forward and look at every way that's practical to do that. Okay, and uh, one last uh, question from uh, oh, question at the front. Uh, if I wait the microphone to come down. And it can't be. Where's the fun? <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks, Will uh, Willis. I just wanted. We've talked a lot about outsourcing of sort of public services. What about interested in Labour's views around use of consultants, particularly in sort of workforce transformation and building new capabilities, uh, and also interested in how the other organisations see the role of consultants in um, in government and Whitehall transformation? Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Well, that's a very good question. Not one that I'm I'm qualified to, to talk about. But again, I think you know transparency and value for money are what matter, and those are the principles that are going to be driving everything we do. Thank you. I had, I'm sure Rachel made a comment on that uh, this morning, actually, on consultants. Mm. Um, I haven't listened to it all yet, so um, I won't try and um, reiterate what she said. But I think in terms of, look, consultants, are, again, in, you've got to understand the context of what you're trying to buy in with some consultant's help. Is it a different view? Is it a different perspective? Is it somebody to carry out the work? I think those, again, a bit like, are you trying to outsource IT or you're trying to outsource uh, people service, de uh, people delivered services? It's a very different proposition. So if consultants help to try and get you over a short-term period of work or a different perspective, I think is should be considered on its merits rather than just a yes or a no, really. Sarah, any further thoughts from you? I mean, I think I'd agree with you on value for money being an important consideration. And I guess kind of from an NCVA perspective, we're really just focused on what brings the best outcomes for communities. Um, and I promise I didn't plan that question, but IFG actually does have a guide for on how to use consultants uh, in government. Uh, and absolutely, I mean, knowing what you're trying to buy in, um, having a plan for how any uh, skills and knowledge and expertise that's developed can be transferred in-house afterwards so that you don't need to go out and buy it again. I mean, Rachel Roos was absolutely right that there has been an explosion in the use of consultants in recent years. That is in large part because uh, civil servants in Whitehall have been asked both to deliver Brexit and COVID simultaneously and there just hasn't been the capacity to do so. And there's a question about whether that will reduce now that that has um, those twin um, challenges uh, have slightly receded uh, but there's also the case of what's what's the alternative obviously we had the Crown Consultancy that was started and has now been uh, scrapped uh, and it's a question of well if you have a kind of consultancy capacity within um, the uh, the civil service, the risk is they just get called to, into doing other work. Um, 
if they're not uh, currently on a job. And so, yeah, there's no easy answers left. And on that note, no easy answers, which is a classic <laughs> IFG way to end uh, an event. I'm going to bring this to a, a close. Uh, I'd like to uh, thank all of our uh, panellists uh, for a brilliant discussion, uh, Serco uh, for supporting the event, and to everyone who came today. Uh, if this has whet your appetite for Institute for Government events, then boy, do we have a lot of events uh, for you, uh, many of which are taking place uh, in this very room. And if for some reason you're not able to attend all of the IFG events, uh, then the audio from them will be going up on our website in the next week, so you can listen back at your leisure. Uh, so thank you very much for coming and uh, enjoy the rest of the conference.